you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to spend some time together in James chapter 2. And if you also have a piece of paper, you can drop it into 1 Timothy 6. James chapter 2, we'll cover verses 1 down to verse 13, and then also we'll be spending a little bit of time in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As fallen human beings, we all have a blind spot. Uh, James is going to point this out in our passage for today, and that blind spot is this. We naturally tend to gravitate towards people that we think will help to advance us in life. I'll say it again. We naturally tend to gravitate towards people who will help us to advance in life. And that's a blind spot. Maybe you've done it like this. I know I have. Maybe you walk into a room and you see someone who is an influencer. Maybe they're a famous rugby player or perhaps it's an influential politician. You see them on the other side of the room. Maybe he's a popular movie star or maybe it's just your rich uncle. You see them on the other side of the room and you know you don't go straight to him. You work the room first. Right? You don't want to make it obvious. And around the room you go because you want to come to him and talk, but you don't want to make it obvious. And so you like a cat. You're like working your way around the room. Your tail is kind of, you know how the cat's tail does, right? You're looking off to the side. You want to talk to him, but you can't really go straight. And finally you come around and then you greet, greet him. Oh, Mr. Important Person, we've been friends for a long time. You just don't know it. You know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> like, my mom's sister's friend went to school with your teacher's cousin, right? <laughs> We've been friends, you just didn't know it. <laughs> and then you introduce yourself. There's a natural tendency within the heart of a man to try to get close to someone who can bring them up in life. And it's a blind spot. Because what we don't realize when we're doing that, while our natural tendency is to draw closer to someone who can draw us up, what we don't realize is that while we're being drawn that direction, we're being drawn away from someone who needs our help. That's our point for today's passage. James is going to say, that ought not be for a believer. Remember what our overarching theme for the entire book of James has been. Examine your faith. Are you really a believer or not? Do you live your life with evidence that you are a believer? Because if you are a believer, there will be ways that you live. Never does James say you're supposed to be living these ways in order to be made right with God. No, instead he's saying, I'm assuming you're a believer because you're my beloved brethren. Those are the words he uses throughout the book. He says, I'm assuming you're my beloved brethren. I'm assuming that you're a believer. And because you're a believer, there's certain ways that you're going to live. And one of the ways that you're not going to live, you're not going to be seeking for ways to make yourself go higher because when you try to seek ways for yourself to go higher, you're going to be turning your back on people that need your help. I want you to see it in chapter 2 and verse number 1. He's going to give us this first idea Here's a principle, and the principle is this. Number one, you cannot hold the faith and play favorites. You cannot hold the faith and play fa favorites. See the principle in verse number one. My brethren, 
Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Here's the principle. You, as a believer, are holding the faith, and that faith is from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Do you hear the words in verse number 1? Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So as we come into this idea that you cannot hold the faith and be a respecter of persons at the same time, you cannot do both of those Here's what he's going to say to start it off with. The principle is you're holding the faith of the Lord who is the Lord of glory. So think with me, what does that mean? What does it mean that he was the Lord of glory? And I think that that works two directions. It works upwards and it works downwards. What do I mean by that? The Lord Jesus, he left the throne of glory. He is the Lord of glory, ever present with the heavenly Father from eternity past. He was forever with Him, forever to be holy, separated and worshipped by the angels and the seraphim. Forever and ever, it was by His very words that the entire existence of creation came into being. By His words, let there be light. It was Jesus. He was the Lord of glory. And it was He who left the throne room of glory to come and be made lower than the angels and to take on the robes of flesh, to be just a man born into a manger, the feeding place of animals. Why would you ever think that you can hold the faith of the Lord of glory and be a respecter of persons? You're playing games. Believers don't do that. He stepped away from the royal robes of sovereignty and clothed himself with the fragile robes of flesh which were marked with fatality. And he did not slip toward anyone who could help him. Instead, he slipped away from the place of everlasting joy so that he could move us from everlasting torment. Oh, that's the faith of the Lord of glory. And that's what I mean when I say, look upward and then also look downward as the Lord of glory extends to you and I the glory that belongs to only Him. You and I, who should have been eternally separated from Him in our sin, He brings us into the status of being the sons of glory. Oh, this is a glorious thought. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He gives His children glory. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. It's a hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of the world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had understood who it was they were dealing with on that day in in front of Pilate, they would not have treated him this way. But instead, he allowed himself to be slain on the cross for you and I. Oh, this is... The gospel, friend, I hope that you allow the gospel to sink down into your heart this morning from the very beginning. The very fact that God is holy, infinitely holy and worshipped by angels and seraphim. And you and I, He cannot have sin in His presence. He's too holy for that. 
And you and I, born in our sin, separated from a holy God, in need of His righteousness, and He provided it. John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Lord Jesus went to the cross so that you and I, if we would but put our trust in Him. Oh, don't think God sent Jesus to the cross, so that's a blanket covering for all mankind. That's not how it works. He made it available for all mankind, so that you and I who will trust in Him, He took the wrath of God upon our sin. He took it upon Himself. And He said, if you will but trust in Him, He will make you righteous. This is the gospel. And so the Lord of glory left heaven so that He might make us righteous. So you can't hold the faith and play favorites. That's the principle. You cannot hold the faith and play favorites. You cannot do that. It's unthinkable for a believer. As we look at the book of James, one of his tests, he's got ten of them, one of his tests is, do you play favorites? Do you just go after the way of natural fallen man and just try to incline yourself towards those who can help you up the status life, status ladder of life? Or do you realize that when you do that, you're leaving behind someone who needs your help? You cannot be a respecter of persons. And then in verses 2 to 4, he gives us an example. So see it in verse 2. Here's the example. If there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel. I'll just pause there. He's given us an example, a setting. He says a guy comes into your midst and he is on his hands. Gold rings in goodly apparel. He's dressed well. He looks nice. And I think that you and I can just in our imagination can think of what that would look like. Maybe perhaps within a setting like, like ours, someone drives into the car park and he's got a shiny vehicle and on his fingers he's got gold rings. And I think within our current setting, you could just even imagine he's, it's hard for him to button his jacket because his bell is too large and maybe his fingers are a little bit on the fat side as he tries to squeeze on a couple more of those gold rings. You want to get close to that guy because he can take you to Singapore for a shopping trip. Oh, wait, I went a little far. Sorry. <laughs> but the point of the matter is that there comes a man into your assembly and your natural inclination is, I want to be kind to that man because of where he can get me in life. I think it's worth noting also the word assembly that's there in verse 2. There comes into your assembly. That assembly, we would take that today as the church, our current setting of church, and remember that James is writing to Jewish believers who are now meeting in churches, but at the very beginning they met in synagogues. They have a background mindset or a history of their worship in synagogues. In the word assembly here in verse 2, this is one of the few times that it's translated in the New Testament as assembly almost every other time. In fact, I think it's something like 49 or 51 times in the New Testament it actually is translated as synagogue. And here the idea is these are believers, so they're no longer worshiping synagogue style, but instead they're worshiping as church in an assembly 
And James says, a man comes into your assembly, don't act the way you would have in a synagogue. That's the point he's making. And so let me just take a moment and explain for you how a synagogue would have been set up. There have been many that have been unearthed in archaeology. It's very easy for us to know what the ancient synagogues looked like, what they were set up like. Uh, Typically in an ancient synagogue in that day, uh, the Jewish people would come to worship and they would worship in a room and I'll use a room like ours. Theirs typically would have been a little bit smaller than ours, but the floor in the middle was open. It's different from the temple. The temple, you would have come into a segregated portion that you had to be a priest to continue on. But in the synagogue, everyone came in and typically everyone faced towards a pulpit where a uh, speaker would open and proclaim the word. Majority of the people would sit on the floor, no chairs, would sit on the floor, cross-legged, but those who were prominent would get a chance to sit along the outside walls. Sometimes it would be three walls, sometimes it would be four walls, and those walls' chairs were made of stone. You wouldn't pick that giant stone and move it across to sit in the middle of the floor. And you can just remember how Jesus sometimes spoke of the Pharisees. He said things like, you want the chief seats. The Pharisees loved to be seated upon those chief seats. You would never, as a child, come in and think you get to go and sit in the synagogue in the chief seats. The the wanted places to sit would be in those seats. You get to be elevated, you see over everybody, you've got a place that you can rest your back. And it definitely would not have been behind a pillar. In fact, most of the synagogues had four pillars inside just for construction. And so for those of you that are seated there and there and there and there, you know what I mean. Those are the cheap seats. Sorry for you guys. And so here comes a goodly man into the assembly, and the ushers say, right this way, sir. Now watch what happens in verse number 3. I'll read verse 2 again. There come unto your assembly a man with a good ring, a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. You say, you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. So you have two guys that walk in. One has the gold rings, fat fingers, nice-looking clothes. Verse 3 calls it gay apparel, literally shining apparel. His clothes make a statement. And you say to that guy, come into our assembly, and we'd like to give you the prime place to seat. I might say something like somewhere right in this area or somewhere right in this area, you'd be able to see the screens just right. The speakers aren't too loud on you. You won't get blocked by a pillar. And oh, by the way, while you're waiting, here, fill out this visitor's card. As much information as you feel comfortable, but especially your email address and phone number. We would love to get to know you. But then you've got this other fellow who walks in, and the words are used there at the end of verse 3. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 2. A poor man in vile raiment. Literally... He smells because he hasn't had the opportunity to take a bath. His clothes, he does not change them. He has probably just this one change of clothes that he works in and he sleeps in. He comes to church in. This poor fellow has 
just this one change of clothes. And the ushers, the last thing they want to do is they want to definitely don't want to sit the vile raiment guy next to Mr. Fancy Pants. We don't want to put those two together because we want Mr. Fancy Pants to keep coming back. We want to be known as the church where Mr. Fancy Pants goes to church because maybe he'll bring some of his Fancy Pants cousins and brothers. And we just don't want too many of the vile raiment kind of people. I like the way that James brings this out, the end of verse 3, what they say to the poor. You say to the poor, stand thou there, or sit thou here under my footstool. In other words, you know, we reserve these nice padded seats for people who wash. And those who can wear a nice change of clothes, they get these chairs. But people who are like you, Mr. Vile Raiment, back corner for you. Uh, we don't want you to block anybody's view. We don't want anybody to feel bad because they sat next to you. But if you really want a place to sit, in fact, come over here and you can sit next to my footstool. Now, do you realize what that means? It means that a guy not only has a chair, but he's got a chair for his feet, his footstool. And he doesn't say, sit on my footstool. He says, sit beneath my footstool. In other words, I'll sit in the chair and I'll put my feet up and you, Mr. Vile Raymond, Sit next to it. There's another added meaning that might be in this idea. The idea of Jesus makes a statement. Let your enemies be your footstool. And the idea that I see here is that you would be looking at this poor person and thinking or maybe even forbid saying you're going to be a servant in this setting. And James goes, this not ought be. There should not be any type of favoritism or respect of persons. Look at how he condemns it in verse 4. Are you not then partial in yourselves? And are you become judges of evil thoughts? Judges should be impartial. Judges should not have evil thoughts. Judges should not look on the outward appearance and say, oh, well, this is the way I think that it's going to be, and then close his ears Judges should not sit on the bench and think, I can't wait to get done with this. No, the judge should come with an open heart. And he says, if you are going to judge somebody by the way that they appear when they walk into the service, you're an evil judge. And believers are not to be evil judges. We come from the principle in number one, you cannot hold the faith and play favorites. We come from that into the second thing that he has to say is in verses five to seven, and that's this, the rich are not as great as you might think. The rich are not as great as you might think. And he's going to say that four different ways in verses 5 to 7. Verse number 5. He's going to give us four reasons that you should not be thinking about Mr. Fancy Pants the way you are. Here's verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. In other words, reason A, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. The rich man has a tendency to place his faith in his riches, not in God. 
And the problem with that is that that's a snare. We'll see that in a moment in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The rich man tends to put his trust in riches, but the poor man doesn't have that crutch. The poor man has no ability to put his trust in riches. The poor man has to put his trust and put his faith in the Lord Jesus. And so when the poor man prays, give us this day our daily bread, he means it. It's much easier, and I'll just be open with you, brothers and sisters, it's much easier for a poor man to be rich in faith than it is for a rich man to be. Jesus' own words, it's more easy for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to pass into heaven. Why? Because the rich man doesn't see a need for faith. He's got it all together. He doesn't need to think about, oh, he's got his own struggles, but his daily bread's not his struggle. And so God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Second and third reasons are found in verse 6. But you despise the poor. In other words, shame on you. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? In other words, reasons B and C, the rich tend to oppress the poor. In letter C, the rich drag the poor to court. There's two very wrong sides to this that you might find yourself in. One side would say, well, the rich do these things, so we need to go burn down their houses. No, 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 no. Don't think that way. James is not setting you up to think, oh, I need to go and, and oppress the poor. No. He's just saying, have a look at the reality. The rich are not as great as you thought they were. So often, we as normal, fallen Human beings with blind sides see a person with means or a person with influence, and we think that person can help move me along. And James goes, don't you realize most likely that person and people of that status would push you down and take advantage of you? Why would you even look that way? He's going, there's a better way to think about this. The rich oppress the poor. Those are the words that he used here. Don't you know that? The rich oppress you, and they draw you before judgment seats. In other words, the rich will take you to court. You realize that the ones going to national court are not the poor against the poor? They're not the ones going to national court. They can't afford the attorney fees. But who can afford the attorney fees? The rich guy. He can afford it. And if it means that he's going to take you to court, he will. You say, I don't understand that. I didn't either until it happened to us. We've been in court. Our church has been in court for the last five years. We're still there. Some of you would know that. Some of you have been following for a long time, and some of you are just shocked that we're still there. Just trust in God to do it. And we've been blessed with a wonderful attorney who is God-sent has done everything without ever charging us a single Toya. So good luck to the guys that are paying attorney fees to keep us in court. And I remember the day that we as a pastoral staff met with this foreign developer, had figured out a way to get a title over our property. And he made it very clear to us that day, you pay me within the next two weeks, these were his words, within the next two weeks you pay me 1.3 million kina, or I will take your property. And I just remember sitting there across the table from him and looking at him with the most bewildered look on my face, 
I can't understand this. I said, how in the world do you expect us to come up with 1.3 million kina? And he said, I look around and I see what's happened here and I can see that there's a lot of money that's gone into this place. Where did that money come from? I said, it came from the donations of God's good-hearted people who have given to do abundantly above what we could ever ask or think. And he said, well, you turn and look at those people and ask them if they want to lose this. You'll pay me 1.3 million. And that day, James chapter 2 and verse 6 came alive to me. The rich will drag you before courts. You see, you cannot just think, oh, that person has status and that person has influence and that person has money, so that person will move me up the ladder in life. James goes, don't think that way. God's chosen the poor to be the ones who are rich in faith. And as that guy walks in, you're despising him, but you're, you, sh- or you should be despising him, but you're instead despising the one in vile raiment. And you have no idea. The guy that just walked in with that one single change of clothing, that guy's been on his knees before God this morning begging for his daily bread. Oh, there's no space for you as a believer to be holding in one hand the faith of the Lord of glory, and on the other hand, being a respecter of persons. There's no space for that. And then he gives us another reason, letter D. It's in verse number 7. The rich blaspheme the beautiful name of Jesus. Look at verse 7. Do not they, the rich, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? Again, they're trusting their riches. They don't think they need Jesus. And it was the very glorious Lord who left heaven to make you and I into sons of glory. Why would you slip away from that glorious Lord to try to slip closer to someone who blasphemes his name? Now, can I take a moment and we take a step over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hold your place here in James 2. And I just want to give some practical helps, pastoral practical helps to you and I this morning. I'll give some advice for the rich and for the poor both. And I think that it's important for us to acknowledge this. Our church is made up of wide demographics. I'm thankful for that. And while I say that, I don't, and I know our church, I don't think we have anybody in our church who would be labeled as extremely rich. And at the same time, I don't think we have anybody among us who we can label as extremely poor. And I'll define that in a moment. And so we don't have anybody that would be on either extreme, and yet we do have people who would find themselves on different degrees along the line between them. It's easy, brothers and sisters, it's easy to say, I'm not poor because you can always find someone who's richer than you are. Unless you're Bill Gates, then you can't find anybody. (laughs) And it's easy for you to think, well, I'm poor Because you can always find somebody richer than you are. But the truth of the matter is, all of us find ourselves somewhere on that scale. And we should always be looking towards those who need us. But that's not our natural inclination. So let me give some advice. I'll give some advice to the rich and I'll give some advice to the poor. Advice for the rich. This is 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. So this is Paul writing to Timothy and he says this, Timothy Verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God 
who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So don't, if you find yourself rich, and boy, I hope that you have a mentality that says, man, God has blessed me above whatever I could ever ask or think. I'm far from struggling to meet today's needs. I hope that you find yourself in that category. And if you do, I want you to think along the lines of God's words to the rich. Don't be high-minded. Don't separate yourself and pull yourself away and say, well, I'm this kind of person. I can't let other people close to me. And I understand why there would be a concern of that. Because within our society, so often those who have not feel so free to ask from those who have. So don't separate yourself just because you're afraid that somebody's going to ask. It's okay to say, I don't have. It's okay to say that. But don't be puffed up and high-minded. It would be very good for your soul to learn how to go and sit, perhaps even in the mud, with those who are in need. But notice also the words in verse 17. Charge them that are rich that they be not high-minded, and they, they don't trust in their uncertain riches. We know that those riches are fleeting but that they need to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And let me just give you some freedom. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in a position where you are rich, God gave that to you richly to enjoy. So there's no need to find yourself guilt-ridden because God has given you riches to enjoy. They're not yours to consume upon your own lust, but there's nothing wrong with enjoying them. They are gifts from our Heavenly Father. Just don't consume them all upon your own lust. And he'll continue on in verse 18 to explain that. Verse 18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. If you want to know what real life is, real life is found in giving to help other people. That's real life. And so if you find yourself in a position where God has met your needs and you have more than you need, you're able to enjoy life, bring others into that life, allow them to have the opportunity to live a life that they would not have separately have enjoyed. I think that one of the best examples for that is if you are a business owner, and I know that we have several, several people among us who are business owners or you're in high-level management within your company, can I encourage you, run your company well. Steward it well. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might as unto the Lord. Do it well, but do not build your kingdom on the backs of poor people. Hear me well. That would be fulfilling James's, James chapter 2's words of the rich oppress the poor. Don't do that. But instead, a godly example of this, run your company in a way that pays your employees right. Pay them well. Look after them well. Let them be upskilled and then treat them with open hands. You know what I mean by treat them with open hands? Upskill them, and if they choose to go somewhere else, let them go somewhere else. 
Don't treat them like a miser who holds them back. The rich, oh, I think of Scrooge McDuck. You know who I'm talking about, right? Scrooge McDuck, if he can do it, swim through his money. Don't be that guy. No, instead, live with an open-handed gratitude. Lord, you've given to me, and I'm going to steward this well so that I can give back and point people to you. Some advice for the poor. I see it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, back in verse 7. Verse 7, some advice for the poor. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. You say, Pastor, I don't have a big house, and I don't have electricity in my house. Friend, my heart goes out to you. But here's the words from Scripture. You've got food, you've got clothing, find contentment. The problem, if I don't have contentment, here's the problem. I'm going to think, well, I need to have this. And when you gain that, having striven and worked and lost relationships and scrapped and cheated and done everything you could to get that, it doesn't satisfy. So that when you get that, now suddenly the heart does a weird thing and causes you to want the next one. And then you scrap until you get that one, and then the heart wants the next one. Here's some wise words, some counsel with food and raiment. Be content. Lord, thank you for what you've provided. I'll continue to pray for my daily bread. I'll let you provide. If you're not careful, you'll want a new phone and new shoes and new TV. Those will lead you to take out a loan. And then you'll work so you can pay off the loan, and then you won't have food money for the next fortnight. And oh, how vicious the cycle becomes. The words of Paul in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7 are very important. Having food and raiment, be content. And then also verse 9, he says this, verse 9. They that, are, that would be wit, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. In other words, don't seek riches. It's like a snare. You never see its destructive power until you're already into it. So don't seek it. And then perhaps some advice for everyone no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum. Some advice for everyone is in verse number six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Not a big fat bank account or a good house or the newest car. Not having your name and your face plastered on billboards or on the side of vehicles. That's not great gain godliness with contentment is not just gain it's great gain i live godly and i'm content where god's gotten me that's great gain it's a whole different mindset that a believer has and then you can see in verse 10 the caution for the love of money is the root of all evil 
which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So don't love money. Don't be mistaken. It didn't say money's the root of all evil. That's a silly statement. It's the love of money. I want it. I love money. I want it. I want to accumulate it. I want to bring it closer to me. I'm going to put my trust in it. No, he says the love of money is the root of all evil. And if you go that direction, you will err from the faith. Like others who have done it before you, it'll pierce your soul. So let's come back to James chapter 2 and we'll finish out the passage. This principle is that you cannot hold the faith and play favorites. You can't do that. It's impossible. It should be unthinkable. And now as we come into verses 8 and down to verse 13, we'll see something here. James is going to make a point, and that point is this. There's liberty that's found in the royal law of Christ. There's liberty that's found in the royal law of Christ. Now, before I read verse 8, I want to bring out an idea. So here we're trying our best to not play favorites as Mr. Fancy Pants comes into church. Gold ring, fine apparel. Vile raiment guy comes in. We're trying not to play favorites there. And oh, how the wicked heart of man will begin to look for loopholes in this example. And here's what I mean. The wicked heart of a man will say, well, what if that guy that's rich, when he was coming in, he told me on the way in the door, what if he told me, I think I'd like to get saved today. Could you seat me somewhere nice? Well, now we've got a loophole that we can play favorites. Or what if we just knew that that guy that was coming in with vile raiment, what if we just knew he was a wanted criminal? Should we just send him over to the side? And, and James is going to go, let's not play with loopholes. Let's just go to a biblical royal law, and we'll let that play out for everything, and we won't play with loopholes. So here comes the royal law in which we find liberty. So verse 8, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you sh thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, as you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin. Oh, those are important words. Did you hear them? If you have respect to persons, you commit sin. And you're convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, let if, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For ye shall have judgment without mercy that have, that have showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. I'll just remind you that in, of the Old Testament, there were 613 Old Testament laws. Ten of them we would be familiar with. We call them the Ten Commandments. You would know them. Two of them have been listed here in these verses. These are the laws that you and I would know. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. He uses those as an example that if you break one, you've broken them all. The law that he used, example, if you've killed, then you've broken all the law. So often we tend to think of the law, though, as if it were a scale. And that's not the way it works. 
You might think of the law as a scale. If I do some good things, then I get to put a stone on this side of the scale and it, goes, it gets weighted that way. And every once in a while, I'll break the law. Like, you know, I'll use the Lord's name in vain, but it's just a little one. So I'll put a little rock on this side. And maybe it kind of leans this way just a little bit. But I'll do some good things, extra good things, like I'll read my Bible, so that'll put some extra things over here. And he said some people think that that's the way the, the law works. He goes, that's not the way, way the law works at all. The law works more like a window. If you drop a hammer and it hits the window, it's broken. You don't get to say, well, only this corner of the window is shattered. It's the window is broken. Or maybe a different example would be a chain. You've got a chain and all of these links that are there together, and one of those links broke. Well, the chain is now worthless. That's how the law works. Because according to the book of Galatians, if you're going to be made right before God, you have to continue in all of the law. In other words, you have to do all of them, and don't just think 10 of them, 613 of them, including put that handrail around the top of your roof. And I bet you none of us have done that. We've now broken the law, all of it. And James gives us an added level to this, however, in verse number 8, that I love, and I think it is going to help us in a great way. So look at the wording that's in, great, in verse number 8. Verse number 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, in other words, the one that came from King Jesus, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. Maybe you've heard it called the golden rule. It's the royal law. Where did the royal law come from? Well, it came from our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the royal sovereign of the universe. And someone came and asked him which of the, great, which of the commandments is the greatest. He gave it and he said, The second one is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So if I were to take the royal law and apply it against this idea of playing favorites, now I don't have a problem with favorites because I'm going to love all of them the same as I love myself. In fact, I could even go to those Ten Commandments, especially the second half of them, and be able to go, well, I love my neighbor as myself, so I'm not going to steal from him. I'm not going to cheat on him. I'm not going to kill him. All of those things fall in place when I follow the royal law of Christ. When I love my neighbor as myself, now it's much easier. In fact, it becomes freeing. Instead of trying to work through every loophole and think, well, this guy, he's got gold rings and nice clothes, and therefore I can show him respect because he's coming to get saved. I don't do loopholes at all. Instead, I just treat every person as my neighbor, and I love every person as myself. Now, let me pause right here, because the world is going to say something that's different than what Christ said. Before you can love your neighbor as yourself, you need to love someone else more. And the world is going to tell you, in order to love your neighbor as yourself, the world will say you need to love yourself. And I'm going to say, great big fat X, no. You already love yourself enough. You were born loving yourself. And you lied to your mom all through your baby days. And you kept telling her that she needed to love you more. 
You don't need any help in loving yourself more, I promise you. You've been loving yourself a whole lot. All of us are naturally inclined to love ourselves. But Christ said there's someone that you need to love more than you love yourself. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. There better be every fabric of your being loving God. And if you're loving God, you put him in his rightful place. And how many times have we said this? If you can get your vertical relationship with him right, the horizontal relationships will begin to fall into place. And so I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind, and then I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. It's not I'm loving myself more so I can love my neighbor more. No, I already love myself too much, and now I'm going to start loving them more. Paul makes it said this way in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's freeing, friend. That's freeing. It's not me going through life trying to find out who's going to help me to get ahead and move up the ladder in life. And no longer do I have to worry about who am I stepping on and pushing down in the ladder. But instead, I just go, you know what? God's brought every single one of these people into my life. And I'm going to treat every single one of them the same. I'm not going to play favorites. I'm not going to hold the faith of the Lord Jesus on one hand and favoritism on the other one. No, I'm going to say, he's made a difference in my life, so I'm going to turn around and love others the way that he's loved me. It's freeing. See the words in verse 12. So speak ye. Talk this way. And so do. Live this way as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, you're being set free with this type of mindset. No longer are you having to go around and think, am I, am I hating him on the inside? Because if you love him like you love yourself, you're not falling into the traps of sinful thoughts. Instead, it's a law of liberty. There's some wording in verse 13 that can be a little bit weighty. Let me read it for you and I'll explain. Verse 13. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. If you've not shown mercy, then you will have judgment upon you without mercy. Another way to say that would be Matthew 5 and verse 7. This was Jesus on the Mount, as he gave the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. James says it the same way. He must have heard his brother Jesus say this. James says it the opposite way. He says, if you don't show mercy, you're going to be judged without mercy. Why does he say judge? Because when you are playing favoritism, you're judging. You're going, that one's worth paying attention to, and that one, I'm going to make him my work boy. And he goes, no, that's not the way that this works. There's no favoritism. And then the latter part of the verse, verse 13, mercy rejoices against judgment. That phrase comes out odd in our modern English. The word rejoices against, that word is used in the New Testament three times. James uses it twice. He uses it here and he uses it over in, in chapter 3 and verse 14. If you want to just glance over and see the other time, he doesn't say rejoices against there. He uses a different word, or it's translated a different way, and it'll help us to understand this. Verse 14, if, 
you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts. Glory not. That's the same word that's used as rejoices. Glory not and lie not against the truth. In other words, don't stand up and puff up yourself. And so when I see this in verse 13, mercy rejoices against judgment. In other words, mercy glories in itself. You can see two boys playing out in the field. And you know how two boys play out in the field, right? They might be playing rugby, one versus one. <laughs> you know how little boys do, right? They're going to find some way to play a game. And two boys playing against each other, we might say they're eight, nine years old, and you just on the side, you listen to those two boys talk. And the one, you know what he says? I'm the best rugby player. I'm better than you are. And the other one, no, I'm better than you are. You know what they're doing? They're boasting against each other. Or to use chapter 2 and verse 13's words, he's rejoicing in his own abilities against the other one. Now let's change it to mercy and judgment. Mercy rejoices against judgment. Mercy boasts of its abilities over against judgment. Mercy says, I'm heaps better than you are, judgment. And I hope that you hear an echo of the cross in that. For you and I deserved the judgment of Christ, a judgment of God upon our sins, but Christ took it on the cross. And in the cross, we got mercy. And mercy stands there as if it were a person and says to judgment, I rejoice. Because mercy beats judgment. And for you and I, every time, we should be thankful for mercy rejoicing against judgment. I want to close with a thought that comes out of this passage. I'll draw, to, draw this together and hopefully close it off with this idea. I've said many times that the book of James is often misunderstood. That's because of the way that the law is handled by readers as they come to the book of James. James is writing to believers. He does mention the law in the book of James. But you and I probably haven't noticed it. Today he's mentioned the law five times in today's passage. He mentions the law in his entire epistle seven times. Once was in chapter 1, once will be in chapter 5, but the other five times he's mentioned the law have been right here in today's verses. He did it once in verse 8, another in 9, then 10, verse 11, and verse 12. He's mentioned the law. So we would say the greatest majority of times that he's spoken about the law has been in today's passage. And I always want to point out in our passages as we walk through the scriptures together, I always want to point out when something's been repeated. And in today's passage, the law has been repeated. And I hope you see what it is that James's point has been. Overarching point for today's passage has not been follow the law and you'll be right with God. His overarching point has been if you're going to play favoritism with people, you're breaking the law and you might as well qu just quit. That's weighty. He's not saying, follow the law and you'll be right with God. He's saying, you're right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. The Lord of glories has shown you grace and mercy. You should be showing it to others. 
And I say it again, James and Paul are not at odds at all. Paul has been saying in his epistles, put your trust in the Lord Jesus and he'll save you, and as a result of that, your life will be changed. And James has been saying it too. Let me point at it in 1 Timothy, uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, sorry, Titus chapter 2. I've got it on the board here. I'll point at it for you and we'll wrap up with this. Here's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and I want to hear, I want you to hear how salvation works into sanctification. In other words, the fulfilling of the law, the living of what God wanted you to, the way God wanted you to live comes as a result of having been a believer. So here's Paul's words. This is Titus 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Aren't you glad it has? Teaching us that because you're saved, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. There's a way you should be living, Christian, because you're saved. There's a way you should be living soberly, righteously, godly. And there's a hope for us, looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. It's not the good works that makes us right with Him. It's the fact that we're right with Him that makes us want to do good works. Oh, friend, James is saying that all through his book. And as we come to verse 14 next week, he's going to start talking about how good works should be a definite display of your salvation. And so we'll leave that for verse 14 as we come into it next week. Father, I thank you for your goodness upon our lives. Oh, how easy it is for us to look at the goodness that you've displayed on us and to think, I'm better than somebody else. Or to think, I just need a hand up from somebody else. And to stop thinking in the way that you have commanded to love others better than ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would not in any way attempt to hold the faith of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, and at the same time to hold favoritism. I pray that we would not allow that to be a part of our lives. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would love the law of liberty, the royal law that you've given us. Love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. Love our neighbors, ourselves. It's in your beautiful name that I ask it. Amen. Church, we love you. May the Lord bless you. Have a wonderful week.